You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. We are glad that you're here. So let me just tell you as we start, my wife and I have been married for 26 years. And uh, thank you. February was uh, our 26th anniversary. Now, let me just tell you this. If you've gotten there, then you know this. If you haven't gotten there, I'll just tell you, I'll give you a little advance. And that is, it's very strange to figure out what to get your spouse for your 26th anniversary after you went all out for 25. Because 25 is such a milestone, then it's like when you're married for 10, and then what do you do for 11? You know, you just, it's, it, you know you're, there's going to be some level of downgrade. So I went all out for 25, and then I just bought my wife a purse and gave her a card for 26, and then she bought me a pair of shoes. And we were like, hey, it can't be anniversary. All right, let's move on. And so anyway, so it was kind of a weird thing because I, we did. 25, I went all out. Um, I booked a hotel on the beach in Naples for a few days. I set up babysitting with the kids, and uh, I had a plan because I had something to prove. So I bought my wife a ring uh, to give to her on our 25th anniversary that was way nicer than the ring I gave to her when we first got engaged. And, uh, you know, which it was okay, the one I gave her. It was just, it was the best I could do. It wasn't great. But uh, the other thing is, is that the way I proposed wasn't great. Um, I proposed to her in, in, at her house in front of her family. Mostly I picked the day because a friend of mine almost spilled the beans uh, the day before. And I thought, I better strike while the iron's hot and while I still have I can seize the moment and, and this be somewhat of a surprise. And then, but Carrie wasn't too thrilled about being asked at her house in front of her family because she didn't really like her house or her family for that matter. Uh, and so anyway, so I had this plan and I designed the ring with a, a friend. And then um, I had an, a, a friend who's a jeweler in North Carolina. I had him make the ring for me. And then we booked a reservation at this resort and then um, it, at the bottom of that resort, uh, in, inside the resort, there was this restaurant that was voted the most romantic restaurant in Naples. And you read it on the internet, so you know it's true. So anyway, so the day before, I tell my wife that I, I usually walk two to three miles every day. So I said, hey, I'm going to go for a walk. Um, and so, but I didn't go for a walk. I just went downstairs and spoke to the manager of the restaurant and told her my plan. So then her and I, we picked out the perfect table that was closest to the beach because this restaurant's right on the sand. So then uh, she lets the whole wait staff know that we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. So we get to the restaurant uh, that night, uh, the next night, and then we have dinner, but it's raining, so I can't go on the beach. And I was gonna ask her to marry me again on the beach with the ring, so I can't do that. So anyway, we're having dinner. It's towards the end of dinner. I'm like, hey, I'm so sorry it's raining. Uh, I had planned for us to walk on the beach after dinner. And she's like, oh, Bob, don't worry about it. This whole trip has been perfect. And it certainly makes up for when you proposed to me at my house. And, uh, and, and so, and I was like, <laughs> and you know, weird laugh. And then I said, well, you know, speaking of that, and so I get down on one knee in the middle of the restaurant. And I just say, Carrie, I love you with all my heart. Will you marry me for another 25 years? I know I was really fantastic. And, uh, and so, and then I open the box and she sees the ring and she literally gasps. That's a good sign. And, uh, and then she said, no delay. Because the first time I asked her, uh, it, she was so taken back 
Like, why are you asking me? My, she, she said the word, uh, you know, she delayed and I had, you know, say the words that every young man wants to say when they ask someone to marry them, which is, I'm going to need an answer. And so, but this was an immediate answer. Uh, when I say, will you marry from another 25? I open the box. She says, yes, absolutely. I mean, then again, is she going to say no? Um, it's like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good with 25. You know, let's drive through. And, uh, and so anyway, and so she says, absolutely. And then the next question she asks, she goes, is that diamond real? And that's good. And then uh, this is actually a picture of her when I, after I gave it to her. And uh, yeah, she's beautiful and charming and all of that. And um, if you can take that down, nobody's going to pay any attention to me if there's a picture of her. And I said, and she says, is it real? And I said, yes, it's real. And it probably costs more than my car, so please don't lose it. And, um, but I can tell you this. When I was going to ask her, I was, um, my heart, I'm telling you, I thought it was going to beat out of my chest because I did not want to mess this up. Because more than anything, I wanted to give her an amazing story to tell. And that's really what I want to talk about these next couple of Sundays at Calvary. I want to talk about how we can live a better story for our marriages. So we're starting a brand new series of teachings. It's for the next, this Sunday and the next three Sundays uh, that we're calling X's and O's. And we're going to talk about creating a game plan for your marriage because I want all of us to have a marriage that is filled with joy. And I thought the best way to do that was to look at the stories of famous couples throughout the Bible. And here's why I wanted to do that, because none of these marriages are perfect. They are flawed, messy, and sometimes very frustrating because people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. But there's a great deal we can learn from them, and it's because they aren't perfect. They aren't perfect marriages. They're real marriages, and the Bible, thankfully, isn't hiding their flaws from us. And this is one of the things I think that happens in stories that get told. Like if you watch any Disney movie, right, people just kind of fall in love and then you never know what happens later, right? They live happily ever after. But it's like, does the prince, does he take out the garbage? Is he a good listener? Is he leaving a mess everywhere he goes? Like I want to know a little bit more. And, 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 and I think one of the reasons why couples get so frustrated is because fairy tales are completely unrealistic. They're unrealistic because, I'm sorry to tell you, girls don't actually look like that. I don't even know if that's anatomically possible. Um, and, and it's unrealistic. Have you noticed that the princes don't even have a name? Like, there's, oh, there's the prince. What's the prince's name? Oh, I don't know, just the prince. Like, you know, prince, you know, when doves cry, that's his name too, right? And so, and, 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 so, and they're unrealistic because, once again, these fairy tale couples, they don't have any problems once they get together. But if you've been married for longer than, let's say, 15 minutes, um, you know that marriage isn't a fairy tale. Truth be told, based on how it's going, it might be closer to a murder mystery than a fairy tale. And what we're hoping to do is maybe make it, change that to like a romantic comedy. And, uh, but listen, you want to know what part of the problem is? Can I just share this with you? And I think this is so important. Too many couples are comparing them, their marriage to other people's Instagram feed marriage. And oh, it's like the perfect pictures. They're so beautiful. And they're eating fancy food in exotic places. And you're not looking at their highlight reel. You're looking at your backstory. You're looking at, like, you know, we're not eating fancy food in exotic places. You're looking at your spouse, and you guys are in the parking lot of a McDonald's. And uh, the picture's out of focus. And the reason why you're in the parking lot is you were too tired. Like, the baby finally fell asleep. And you're like, we're not getting out of this car. We're just going to let this baby sleep, and we're just going to eat this McDouble together. And we're just not even going to talk, you know? And, and it's like, and, and, and listen... And so can I just encourage you in this? And I just want to give us permission to this. You got to stop judging your marriage based on somebody else's highlights. It's just not, it's not real. So what I want to do today is I want to look at one of the most revered couples 
in Judaism, uh, in Jewish history, Abraham and Sarah. They are called the first couple of Judaism. Abraham, because he's the father of faith, and throughout the Bible, Sarah is the model for wives. And, uh, and you know what I love about this couple is that they had problems too. And uh, so be encouraged by that, that no marriage is perfect. And the thing that I love about their story, even the part that we're going to read today, we're going to read the whole story, but we're going to read part, is that it intersects with our reality. It's so real because it's where we live. It's about making hard choices. It's about trusting God and taking steps, even if we're unsure as to where it's, it's going to lead. And so uh, can I just encourage you in this, is that you just hang with us for the four weeks of this series. And if you do, I can assure you of this, is that you're going to begin to see amazing results in your marriage. Now, you may not see amazing results in your spouse right away, but you're going to start to see amazing results in you. And that's going to begin to turn the tide and change things in your marriage and not just transform your marriage, but transform your future. So let's start. We're going to be in uh, chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. We're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now if you pause there and give me your attention. There's three things I want to spend our time looking at. The first is this. Is that according to these verses, every marriage has the promise of blessing. Now, let me tell you the reality of Abraham and Sarah. Because sometimes you look at it like, well, yeah, of course it's going to be easy for them. No, let me, the, the reality of Abraham and Sarah is that this was an arranged marriage. You know how we know that? Because every marriage was an arranged marriage back then. And when I was younger, I used to think that the idea of an arranged marriage was so antiquated and unnecessary. And now I have three children. And I'm like, this is really the way to go. And, uh, and I'll tell you this, because I've seen my kids order at restaurants and then be like, oh, I don't know if I like, you know, and it's like, I don't know if kids should be allowed to, to make this kind of decision without parental input. And um, because kids, you know, once again, you're 18, 19, 20, you don't know what to look for. It's like, oh, he's cute. He's cute. You know what's cute? Good credit. Uh, the, <laughs> don't worry, we're doing an Equifax on you, buddy. And, uh, and it's like, oh, he's so funny. You know what's not funny? A criminal record. And wait till we do the federal background check. We'll see what that pulls up. But listen, can I just, this is so important, and this is why I think this whole series and what we're going to talk about is so important, is when your marriage is doing well, everything in, your, in the rest of your life could be not so great, and you still feel blessed. And yet the inverse, sadly, is also true. When your marriage is struggling, no matter how right everything else is going, you can't enjoy it. And it's simply because your marriage is the most important earthly relationship in your life. In fact, this is so powerful. In Psalm 128, this is what the psalmist shows, uh, tells us. He says, your wife will be like a fruitful grape tree, a grapevine, uh, flourishing within your home. Your children uh, will, will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. Now, I, I know it's hard to read that and be like, okay, everybody's going to be kind of fruity. You know, what does that, what does that mean? And um, it's the, these are all Jewish metaphors. But the grapevine and the olive tree are what produce wine and olive oil. Those are the two things that were needed to throw a party in the ancient world. And so the Psalm, Psalm 128, so there's 150 Psalms uh, in the Bible. And 15 of those Psalms are called the Songs of Ascent, 
What that means is these were 15 songs that pilgrims, wherever they lived in the world, that they would sing these 15 psalms on their way to Jerusalem when they went to worship or keep one of the feasts. And so in one of the things, in Psalm 128 in particular, is about how your life and your family is blessed when you walk with God. In fact, Psalm 128 verse 1 says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That is the, and then the fruit of walking with God becomes what we read, is that's a blessed family. And so the promise for Abraham and Sarah is this, if you follow me, I will bless you. Now understand, and this is so important, what we think, there, there is a Hebrew understanding of the word blessing, and then there's kind of the American slash Western idea of blessing. The word blessing in the Hebrew culture, and even the Greek culture, was this, it means this, oh, how happy is. Uh, blessing was more connected to joy than anything else. It was a, a, a joy that comes from walking according to God's ways. We think, in, and once again, our Western mind, we think of blessed in terms of more. And so, oh man, I got blessed with more money at work. Man, I ordered a medium fry at Chick-fil-A and I got blessed with a large and you know it's from God because it came from Chick-fil-A. And so, <laughs> but blessing doesn't just appear when there's more. Blessing can start when there's nothing. And, and you believe that there can be more when you do what's right. And so listen, God wants to bless your marriage. And that means that he wants to do great things in your marriage and then do great things through your marriage into future generations. But the blessing of your marriage doesn't start the minute that there's more. And it starts when we start embracing the promises and the commands of God. The blessing begins at believing, and then it starts growing in unseen places and becomes visible until no one can deny the work that God is doing. That's why Psalm 28, or 128, gives us the metaphor that there is the grapevine that is your spouse, and that is the olive tree, which is your kids. Why? Why is that important? Because what happens for a grape, uh, a grapevine to grow and bear fruit and for an olive tree to bear fruit, there has to be tending and watering and caring that nobody sees. But then when the fruit comes, it's now visible for everyone. When my wife and I first got married, I mean, we didn't, um, you know, we were college students, so we didn't, we had nothing. All of our furniture uh, was... <laughs> The, um, and I know that there's a TV show about this. I've never seen it, but at least that's what I've, I've heard. There's like a storage unit television show, right? That's what I've been told. So uh, someone in my wife's family uh, managed this storage unit. Uh, and so anyone who didn't pay, the, 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 the company kept all the stuff. So they told us, hey, you're getting married. Go to the storage unit, and you'll see all the stuff that we've kept, and you just take whatever you need for your apartment. So we got a couch and uh, a chair and a little coffee table and a dining room table that only had three chairs. So whenever a fourth person was there, they had to stand the whole time. And, um, and so anyway, none of it matched. And once again, we didn't care. And um, so I was, I was finishing my theology uh, a degree and uh, I was working at this company that manufactured home accessory. Carrie was in college too and working at a bank. And um, our budget was 35 bucks a month for groceries. Now, I know you're like, you mean 35 bucks a day or a week? No, I'm 35 bucks a month. And we were trying to get out of debt and we were faithful and giving and all that. The only time that we went out for dinner um, was on Sundays after lunch. And if you're old enough to remember this, um, there was a time when McDonald's would do, on Sundays, they would do 39 cent cheeseburgers. Anybody remember that? Yeah, that was like manna from heaven. And um, so it was processed manna from heaven, but manna from heaven nonetheless. And so anyway, so that was the only time that Carrie and I would go out because her and I could eat like a full meal for like $4. And so it was fantastic. 
So that was our after Sunday splurge. Um, but we had a TV that someone gave us, but we had no cable. So we never turned it on because it was just, you know, static. And um, I mean, we didn't own a, I used to have a laser displayer, but it broke. And, uh, and then we didn't have a DVD, you know, we didn't own a VCR, much less a DVD player. And so, but here's what happened. You know what we did? We talked and we talked and we talked and we talked and we did other stuff that young married couples do. And uh, especially when you dated for four and a half years and you waited until you got married, uh, we were not losing time. So anyway, uh, now here's, here's, here's why I tell you this. My last semester of college, I'm getting my undergrad and um, I had two classes that I needed to graduate. One of them they were offering, one they were not. And so I, I went to the office and I said, listen, I need to take this class to graduate, but you guys aren't offering it. They said, all right, we'll see what we can do. They call me back a couple days later and I go to the office and they say, look, we don't, we're not offering the class, but we actually have a recording of it from two semesters ago. So if you want, you can watch the class and then the syllabus, we'll give you the syllabus and we have someone who will proctor the class for you and grade the papers and all that. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. So then, you know those, those big file uh, folders, the portable ones that you can get, they're made out of cardboard. So then they say that, they pick it up, they pick one up and they put it on the desk. It is filled with VHS tapes. And this, once again, this is going back like right around the time electricity was invented. And uh, so they give me that and I say, oh, great, thank you. And, uh, and I walk out of the office and I put it in my car. The thing is, I don't own a VCR. And I'm thinking, what am I gonna do? So, and I'm driving home, like maybe I call one of my friends and be like, hey, can I, um, can I sit in your uh, room for you know, 16 hours or something, you know, a few hours a week and just watch this stuff? So anyway, um, it, it, it's, it's, I, don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm gonna do. So I get home and I tell Carrie, hey, this is, you know, I don't, I don't know um, what we're gonna do. So we're trying to figure it out. Well, the next day, um, I get a knock at the door, and, uh, and it's my mom, because she's Cuban. She doesn't call before she shows up. So anyway, so she, I open the door, and she's like, hey, do you happen to need a VCR? And I'm like, why do you ask? She goes, because there was someone I work with. They were throwing out a VCR. They said it was broken, and I told them that I would have it, and I just, all you, I took a screwdriver, just kind of popped this thing, and it works perfectly now, but I already have VCR. I thought you might want one, and I'm like, Yes, I do need one. By the way, you got to call first before you come over. And, uh, and so, and, but listen, and, here, and here's the point. Listen, and I'm telling you, I have story after story after story of what God did in our marriage in that, in that first year that God just showed up in so many different ways in ways that we never even dreamed. I mean, you know, once again, I remember praying like, God, I don't know if you like make VCRs, but um, I, I could use one. And I was thinking like, you know, maybe you could just drop me like a hundred bucks and I'll go buy one. And, um, you know, I got one for free the next day. And, and, and can I just tell you this, that on the outside, you know, people must have, I'm telling you, people felt bad for us. Like, oh, it must be so sad to be Bob and Carrie. They don't have a big TV. They don't even have cable. How do you live? You know, listen, we were so blessed, and the marriage that we have today was built on that first year of not having anything else but each other and the God who called us. And listen, when, when people read about the promise that God made to Abraham, if you're a Christian, this, we've talked about this passage, and this passage gets preached on all the time, and we think of kind of the big theological implications, which are very important, that God called Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people. God called David. David, uh, through him, was going to be the Messiah, and so the, the fulfillment of this promise is in Jesus, the Messiah. All of that is true, and all of that is important, but do you know that it starts with just a family? It starts with a couple, that God is saying, listen, I want to do amazing things in your life if you'll just trust me. 
And then God gives this wonderful promise of protection that I'm going to bless everyone who blesses you. I'm going to curse everybody who curses you. My point is this. we got to stop comparing our marriage to anybody else's marriage because we have no idea what that marriage is really like. It could be that everything looks nice on the outside, but it's falling apart from within. And if you want to have the blessing of Abraham, we need to learn the lesson of Abraham. And that is, we start with obedience to God, doing what he wants us to do, going where he wants us to go, and the blessing follows. Well, look what happens next in verse 4. It says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they have gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the, land, to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites then were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you is that not only every marriage has the promise of blessing, but every marriage can create a godly culture. And by the way, godly culture then becomes not just a blessing to your home, but a blessing to your heritage and every generation that succeeds you. When Abraham and Sarah get to Shechem, they get to the promised land. In fact, let me show you this map. So this is the, um, and then forgive me, this is a weird map. I don't know why there's dolphin in the Mediterranean. Uh, the, the ships make sense because Tyre and Sidon were kind of known for that. I don't know what's going on with the camels here. I think this is maybe where they make the cigarettes. And, um, but anyway, but just to give you an idea, Dan, this is the northernmost area of Israel. Beersheba is the southernmost area of Israel. And Shechem is right in the middle. So I want you to understand that when Abraham and Sarah get into the promised land, they're not just inching their way in. They get to the very center of the promised land in this plain area, and now they're dwelling there. And there it says that Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. Now, once again, that's pretty normal in that culture. But there's something more at work here. Shechem now becomes the place where promises are made and where commitments are kept. Two generations later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family, after he has gone uh, to the east, gotten his wife and then his family, and now they come back to the land where God has promised to them. This is the place where they make the promise, and they come back to everything that God has for them. And where do they go? They go to Shechem. In uh, Genesis 35, it says, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. When the children of Israel come out of Egypt, Moses is their leader. When Moses dies, Joshua leads the people into the land. They conquer the land. They divide up the land by tribe. And when Joshua is going to die and then commit what everything has happened to the leaders of Israel... He gives this big speech. And so in Joshua 24, if you've ever seen that passage, maybe you've read it, maybe you've seen it on a plaque somewhere in somebody's house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That wasn't done at Shiloh, even though that's where the tabernacle was. He gives that speech at Shechem because that's the place where promises are made. In fact, uh, and you'll see it in Joshua 24, verse 25 in your notes. It says, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Later on, 
Now, let's fast forward about 1,800 years. 1,800 years later, Jesus is walking through Shechem. And he gets to a well because he's thirsty. And a woman comes out to get water, and he speaks to her, and that just freaks her out. Because men in that culture did not talk to women publicly. Rabbis didn't even speak to their wives in public. That's how serious they were about that. Well, Jesus jumps way over that barrier and initiates a conversation with her. Now, this woman has had a troubled life. She's been married five times. She's a social outcast. Jesus talks with her, and her life is transformed. Because while everyone else used her, Jesus loved her. Listen, that woman at the well transformed that whole community, talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Abraham had no idea how one act of obedience would start a chain reaction in history. That one act of obedience in Shechem transformed generations of people. And can I just share this with you, that your home is Shechem, that your marriage is Shechem. Whatever you do in your marriage, you are creating a culture that is going to outlast you, but then spill into the next generation and the one after that. And sometimes, listen, couples miss this, and, and then their marriage suffers because we think that somehow we're powerless to change anything. And I want to tell you something, that you are a thermostat, not a thermometer. Thermometers just report the temperature, but thermostats can change the temperature in the room, and you can do that in your marriage. And the things that we repeatedly do day in and day out are more than just actions. They are creating a culture in your home, and they are creating a legacy in your family. So what kind of uh, culture do you want to create? Let's talk about three. Here's the first one if you're a note taker. Create a culture of joy. One of the questions, I'll tell you the question that my wife gets asked, maybe the question she gets asked the most is this. um, Is Pastor Bob as funny at home as he is at church? And I was up Uh, I was upstairs a few weeks ago, and I overheard my wife giving the answer to that. And um, they said, is Pastor Bob um, funnier, uh, is Pastor Bob this funny at home as he is at church? She goes, no, he's way funnier at home. And um, I thought that was one of the nicest things she ever said to me, uh, ever said about me. And uh, I mean, because there's lots of stuff I can't do here, but there's like songs that I make up and dances that we do. And that's just, you know, you'd think I was totally insane. I just want you to only question if I'm insane uh, when I'm here. But Carrie and I, listen, since we got married 26 years ago, we decided that we wanted to have a culture of joy and laughter. We both grew up in depressing, somewhat violent homes. And we didn't want to live that way when we got married. We decided that that legacy ended with us and that we were going to start something new in our family tree. And so we have one goal in our family. And I've said, if you've been around here, I've said it many times. We want to be the family that laughs the most. That's the only contest I want to win. I don't care who has the most, and I don't care who drives the nicest car. I don't care about any of that. I just want to be the family that laughs the most because where there's laughter, there's connection. Where there's connection, there's communication. Where there's communication, there's joy. And where there's deep joy... And my friends, where there's deep joy, Jesus is there. And that's where it's at. And you know, the thing that happens is, and I appreciate you guys responding to that. I really do. Um, here's the thing about creating a culture is that you create a culture in your home and it's not just you. You set the tone. But then you know what happens is that then everybody else that's experiencing it, they start shaping and reshaping the culture as well. And it, it kind of goes way beyond just you. And uh, even when, I'm, when Carrie and I aren't there, you know what my three kids are experiencing? Joy and laughter. 
so, and, and once again, I'll tell you who the funniest person in my family is, and it's not me. It's my 11-year-old daughter, Olivia. She is hilarious, and, um, and she's always been funny. So Livy sends, uh, I'm at the office, and Carrie is out. We had a babysitter at the house, and she sends us this video. She's like, maybe not, I don't even know if she's quite seven years old yet. And um, she made this video that she thought we would like. So it's short. I'll show it to you. <laughs> and listen, I saw, I was driving, and I almost drove off the road uh, when I saw that. There's a longer version of that. But listen, it's just, it, she's just, why? They're just experiencing joy. And you know what they want to do? Export it. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you this one real quick. At the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, this is when everything was still open. There's no masks yet. Nobody had, you know, nobody had, had figured that out or wanted to do that and whatever. And, um, and so, you know, we're, they're trying to figure out what COVID is. And, and so, but, but everybody is hearing that everything might shut down. So everybody and their mother is headed to Publix to buy everything. And I went to Publix because I needed uh, peanut butter. And that was the only thing on my list. And so, but I'm like, Livy, come with me. And then Carrie's like, oh, can you get a couple other things? So anyway, we're walking through the dairy section of Publix, but it's so full, you can't even move. And so Livy, and this is just, once again, this is just her. And she's maybe eight at the time, maybe. And um, she starts coughing um, in the beginning of a pandemic. And she starts coughing and she goes, wow, that coronavirus really got me. And uh, listen, that whole place cleared out in a matter of seconds. And then I got all the items that I needed. And, and, and I said, I saw that, man. I started laughing so hard. And I told Livy, and I said, I have never loved you more than I do right now. Listen, can I, can I share this verse with you? And, and, and I hope that you just commit it to memory. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, it says this, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Listen, as Christians, we need to stop only being known for what we're against. We got to start being known for what we're for. If I believe that if we will embrace the joy that comes from knowing God, that is the greatest evangelistic tool that we could ever um, use. Because listen, if being a Christian has made you a miserable person, can I just tell you this? As someone who loves you, you're doing it wrong. You are loved by God. You're forgiven by God. God wants to make you wise as you obey him. God wants to put amazing people in your life and lead and direct you. That is cause for joy. So create a culture of joy in your home. Second thing is create a culture of devotion. And by the way, that's not just devotion to each other, but I'm talking about devotion to God as we uh, walk with him and serve him. Listen, um, when you create a culture where you are talking about God's word and you are serving God, and it's commonplace, it will radically transform your house. Now, listen, I'm a pastor, and, and I, you know, know a few things about the Bible, and, um, but it's just the Bible for us, Scripture is like oxygen in our home. It's just something that gets talked about all the time. I, I, we went out to dinner on Friday night when my kids were at youth, and then we had dinner waiting for them when they got home, and uh, so I was, we had already eaten, but we were just sitting with them talking, and then my daughter, uh, my daughter Mia, just, uh, she turns to me, and she's like, Dad, book of Revelation. Talk to me about it. And I'm like, well, what, what do you want to know? She's, you know, just get, give me some highlights. I'm like, okay. Satan is bad. He loses. Jesus wins. The end. Like, okay, that's good. That's about it. 
And, uh, and she's like, no, 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 we'll get a little more. And so I'm like, okay, so you want more like an outline. And so, and we talked about that for a while. She's like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, and I'm like, you know, I, ta- I spent like nine months teaching the book of Revelation, uh, but you were like five years old, so maybe you missed some of it. And, um, but let me tell and listen, and I'm not saying you've got to be a theologian, um, but you've got to talk about in your home that we pray about things. We, this is what the Bible says, and we're going to do it. Even, even if it doesn't totally make sense, we're going to trust God. That now starts to influence the decisions that get made in your home. It starts to influence the culture of your home and, and how your kids begin to respond. Uh, uh, listen, um, a couple, and this is so huge, a couple who decide that being in church isn't a priority. Let me tell you what kids do. Kids decide, if, if it's not a priority for you, it's not important to me at all. This is one of the things I tell my kids all the time. I say, let's take this to its logical conclusion. And so, once again, your kids are not so much listening to what you say. They are affected by the culture that you create, and they are watching what you do. This is what happens, is that then, if you don't think it's a priority, the kids don't think it's important at all, and then kids start rebelling. And and once again, let's just fast forward. Then I get phone calls from parents. You got to talk to my son. You got to talk to my daughter. They're, they're, they're not listening. They don't want to go to church anymore. And I don't understand what happened. Well, everyone who isn't in denial understands what happened. It's that your kids were taking what was modeled for them, and they are just taking it to its logical conclusion. And by the way, a 10-minute conversation with anybody isn't going to undo months or even years of the culture that, 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 that we've created. Let me just tell you what we do at Calvary with the one hour a week that we get with your kids, whether it's in children's ministry or youth ministry, we are reinforcing the spiritual training that you're giving them at home. But we get them for one hour a week. There's 178 hours um, that everybody's experiencing over the course of, of, of a week. And we've got to use all the hours to train our kids in the way that they should go according to Proverbs. And so, and if we don't, listen, and once again, you don't have to do this. It's a free country. But just understand that there's a road where this leads, and you got to decide if this is where you want the road to take you. And so, and if you don't want that outcome, then here's what I would say. Be the thermostat and change the temperature. And if you want to even do this study, and this is I would encourage you to do, just do this experiment. Look at the healthiest families that you know, the healthiest couples that you know. What are they doing? And you know what you're going to find? It's a culture of joy. It's a culture of devotion. They are not just attending together. They are serving together. I'm telling you, if you, your family will serve together at church, you know what happens? When you, go, when, when, when you come here and you serve, you're putting other people first. You know what happens when you leave and you've been putting other people first? You're going to go home and put others first, and that's going to transform what happens. When you're devoted to Jesus and each other, you start serving one another at church, you're going to start serving one another in your home as well. Third thing, create a culture of communication. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 25.1, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. One of the most important things for any couple that they can do is to be careful how they fill in the gaps when there isn't communication. What do I mean? If you're not communicating regularly about what you're doing and why you're doing it and all that, you will decide for yourself what your spouse's motives are. And you'll decide for yourself what they think. There's a problem with that. We're, we're terrible at this game. 
Like, I know why you did that. And it's like, no, that's not why I, I did that. It, like, we almost never get this right. And the reason is, is because we are assuming the worst or assuming ill intentions, even with the people that we love the most. And objectively, it doesn't make any sense, but we still do it. If you want a marriage that is built on trust, you have to assume goodwill and not suspicion. I, I had uh, a group of friends in high school, but there were these two friends that I had that got into this argument. And it was such a huge argument that they were not even on speaking terms. And they got to the point where anytime one of them walked in, the other would walk out. Now, I want you to imagine going to the movies with these lunatics. Is that we would go, hey, we're going to go to the movies, we're going to go to this, this show. And then we get there, and then the other guy's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get a refund. Like, dude, for real? You can't even sit in the same theater? And so, but once again... Uh, and so I ended up, for whatever reason, being the one that got them to finally sit down and work this out. And then they became friends again. And then one of them, a few weeks later, decided, I'm not mad at him, I'm mad at you. And then he wouldn't talk to me. And then every time I walked in, he would walk out of the room. And I was just like, you know what? I need new friends. Uh, I'm retiring all of you. And so, but listen, trust and suspicion are the same thing. When one walks in, the other walks out. You can't simultaneously live with trust and suspicion. Um, the problem with suspicion is that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're looking for a reason to distrust your spouse, you'll eventually find it. Because all of us, what, I don't know if you know this, but all of us are married to imperfect people. Uh, not my spouse. Uh, but listen, because suspicion always finds fault. This is why the command in 1 Corinthians 13 says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Why is that? Is it, is it saying, well, love needs to just bury its head in the sand? No. We deal with issues when they come up. But we aren't going to live in the past. And love requires this because it's impossible to, believe, to build trust. It's impossible to believe the best if we spend our entire lives keeping score. Well, I'm going to end it here. But look at verse 8. It says this, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, still going on still toward the south. Now if you pause there and uh, give me your attention. Last thing I want to tell you, and then we're going to wrap it up. And that is that every marriage has the ability to grow. Abraham and Sarah for all the mistakes that they made, they never stopped growing. They never got to the place where they said, hey, we built an altar, we're good. Instead, everywhere they went, they built an altar. And it says, listen, they moved from this plain area in Shechem. It says they moved to the mountain, which typically in that culture um, was more difficult to live than in the, the plain area because you couldn't really grow uh, so much in, in, in grow things in, in the mountain. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Because most of us are doing things to try to make our lives easier. That's why we're always trying to get Alexa or Siri to do everything for us. And then we start thinking that that's how it works in marriage. But your marriage gets better not when you're trying to make everything easier, but when you're taking on new challenges. When you keep climbing mountains and building altars. When you realize every place is a place for devotion and worship. And I want you to notice something, that pitching a tent, that's a temporary thing. Because when we're done here, we just roll up the tent, we pack up, and we move on. It's temporary. But the altars that they built were standing long after Abraham and Sarah were gone. And listen, this is huge for your marriage because the moment 
that we stop taking these rocks and building altars, we will use those same stones to stone each other. Listen, your spouse is not Jesus. He is not the Savior. She is not the Savior. And the moment that we start expecting our spouse to be the person who meets all of our needs, that's when we start thinking that, oh, this is, I'm, I'm married to my Messiah. And when they can't live up to that imposed position, you will crucify them. So what do we do? We keep building altars. We keep drawing close to God because a marriage only works when we invite Jesus into the marriage. Most people want to invite Jesus to the wedding. That's why people want to get married in a church. And I'm asking you to do something way more difficult, but way more effective. And that is not just invite Jesus to your wedding, invite Jesus into your marriage. So what does it take to climb a mountain? It takes commitment. And that's what I'm asking you to do, to commit to your marriage and do whatever it takes to make it work. What does it take to build an altar? It takes two things. It takes sweat and it takes understanding. You've got to know how to build one and you've got to put in the work to make it happen. You know what it takes to build a successful marriage? Sweat and understanding. You've got to know how to build one and you've got to put in the work to make it work. And listen, I, I, I want us to decide that we're going to climb the mountain together that we're going to build altars together and we're going to watch God bless our marriages because we're going to stay together and it's not just for us. We're going to watch God bless our family and we're going to watch God be, uh, be, watch our family become a blessing as we change our family tree and we change what happens for generations of our family. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you Thank you for the good work that you want to do, that you are calling us to build altars, to keep taking the mountains, and that we could do it together and that we could do it with joy. Help us, Lord. We know we're not perfect. We know we're going to stumble and fail, but we pray that we would have this desire to trust as we trust you, trust our spouse and our family. Lord, we look forward to you doing that great work in us and through us and for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.